0: The tea is too hot. All
1: right, sorry. That wasn't me. We could also make a video of the three of us going to a concert and cracking tall boys. It'd be really hard to get a tall boy in. we could just take a video of going through the security. <laughs> the tall and having them take it out and just be like, oh, I can't bring that in. Oh,
0: they check your bags before they take your tickets.
2: So we could do yeah. this
0: every night.
2: Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> we don't even need to buy tickets. Just we could just go. Just keep trying to get it. And then when get in, i am like, we don't have tickets. <laughs>
0: dodgy out there
2: this is spencer out of this
0: this is one of your hosts spencer here with your other two hosts who shall remain nameless don't talk
1: we (laughs) well stackable (laughs) that's michael Uh, i said it that's michael j vince i don't know my name i'm sorry i ruined it
0: Depending on who you are, this might be the episode for you. Are you constantly being admonished not to inject insulin into your stomach in the middle of a concert? Well, this episode is all about concert etiquette. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Clapping, not clapping, what's the best symphony to bring your stepchildren to, as opposed to your legitimate family?
2: We will tell you.
1: (laughs) That's terrible. I love that.
2: So we've talked about this topic or some iteration of this topic, I think, in multiple times. Yeah, it comes up like every other episode. So this time we're actually kind of drilling down into it and discussing what might be the reason it was expected in the first place, and is it really necessary now? I mean, throughout time there's always been different forms of concert experience. There's been Sacred, there's been Parlor, there's been Concert Hall, there's been huge Wagnerian operatic fully staged productions... But I feel like throughout time, experiences weren't all that different. Res- there's some institutions still clinging on to this old antiquated idea of the past with the huge gilded concert halls. Oh, yeah. It's this whole reverent experience where that's not as relevant in the realms of music outside of the classical. Well,
1: And also the whole idea of a lot of this etiquette is antiquated. It's not even as old as people think. Back when Mozart was performing, he enjoyed it when audiences would applaud or cheer at a gesture or a a tune that they really liked. Like, that would happen in a concert. It was a big performance. They were there to see him. When Liszt was performing, he had similar, like, rock bands in the 60s, underwear being thrown at him from the audience and stuff. Like Things were not prim and proper all the time. I was looking it up. One of the main origin points for not applauding between movements People point at Mahler all the time, and they say, oh, he really changed the concert hall and made it much more stodgy and stuff. But it's actually just because... I mean, he did used to get pissy at audiences for doing those kinds of things. But it was never hyper-enforced, I don't think. The main thing was in Kindertoten Leader. He writes in the program that he wants people to hold their applause between movements and not make any noise. But it's because it's a piece about... Kids dying. Apparently, like, it's great. We can always blame this fucker. Wagner was the one who was always saying, like, we need less noise in the concert hall.
2: That was good. That's your fourth one, too. Yeah. I think that's a very fair point. So what you're saying is that it was more specific to the atmosphere of the piece and the experience than it was just as a general concert rule.
1: Right, at least at the beginnings of when this trend started. And then I feel like people just picked it up because the point became more about the CNB scene in terms of wealth maybe became more the point or more the focus.
2: Well, it seems really ritualistic. <clears throat> is going to classical concert a ritual or an experience? I tend to lean on He's the so side good. that should be an experience instead of a ritual. I don't think it should be something that you go and you have your rehearsed parts that you're expected to do.
0: Is a, I mean, is a rock concert more of an experience or more of a ritual
2: that's a good question, I think too. it's because, all experience. Well, I think you could argue it's both because it could be less strict, but I feel like there are definitely expectations of a rock concert. Is it, you're is going a, to have oh, fun, yeah, you you're going to drink, usually you're going to... Well, it has its own Spend rules, $17
1: too. $17 for parking. Exactly. I mean, think about... there. This is an extreme example, but there are definitely parts of the rock world that have rules and self-enforced rules, like the mosh pit, even though that's... <laughs> I'm serious. Sure. But also, like... There are things that you don't do, and it has similar or that restrictions.
0: You, you do right, exactly. There's, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's not written down where you're supposed to clap for any concert. But if you know the genre and you you go to the shows, then then you'll know it. The first time I went to a ballet, and everyone claps after. I still don't know what happened to elicit clapping. Oh yeah, everyone seemed to know when to clap, like they were solos or something. But they weren't. They were just people dancing. And then there was music under it that was really nice. But the people on stage looked like morons.
1: <laughs> Flapping
0: around. Well, that's a, just, that's a it might really have been a dream.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a really good point. Because then it looks like there were no clues or indications as to why it prompted plotting to say, oh, that was great. Oh, but and I will say, more- I
0: was so traumatized by that. I have yet to go to another ballet. Really? Yeah. Because it sucked. <laughs>
2: Do you think that your clapping was genuine? Was genuine. When you applaud at these things, if it, an experience you don't like at a concert, are you doing it out of expectation or are you doing it out of appreciation? You, you do it for the same reason you, you clap
0: whenever you clap, everyone else is doing oh, it. Oh, I'll not I clap.
1: <laughs> Multiple, many times not clapped.
0: But the, but usually, if you're at your it's, cousin's graduation yeah. it's and like everyone's clap. clapping. Oh, well, like, no, I mean, that's clapping for a different reason. It.
2: But think about all the times that you like actually... How,
1: I mean, it's like how the standing O is becoming part of the etiquette. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, we have to not take a stand. See, that's like, the only kind we have of to, I have.
2: problem, I think,
1: because... you're I know we're, like, lowering the bar for which people are doing this thing.
2: I've definitely not stood when I didn't think something warranted a standing. But you
1: have to like glue Unless your ass does, to your seat. And then, yeah. We think
0: about classical music concerts having all these expectations of participant of an audience member, but I've never been chastised for anything at a classical music concert. But when I don't stand for the national anthem, someone always chastises me. Mm. And like that's a baseball game. I pretty much just go to those for like the ice cream in the plastic hat. <laughs>
2: Oh, yeah, that is the best part. Here's a question, because I was thinking about this recently. Try to think of a time when you actually applauded out of pure excitement for something. I know I did. I did on Sunday during Game of Thrones. Oh, like not in a
1: concert, but just like when you spontaneously were just like,
3: yes. Sports,
2: I think, is probably the most common. That that happens naturally. But I cannot, honestly, I cannot think of that many concerts where I have been so moved, that I wasn't clapping, like Spencer said, as part oh. of the group mentality.
1: Yeah, you just don't like music.
2: No, it's not that I don't <laughs> appreciate it. I do. <laughs> but I think that...
1: You're too stupid to know. No. No,
0: it's the, the yeah. energy of the uh, the place you're watching it. Because you might clap at a baseball game while you're at the stadium, but you're probably not going to clap at home. Certainly not
1: as long. That's true. That's well, true. That'd be fucking weird. (laughs) Just standing at home, (laughs) watching the team trot out. Yeah, you do do the wave by yourself. That's our boys. That's our boys. D. We need D. (laughs) We've been on C sharp for a half hour. I need D. Uh, uh, uh. But um, (laughs) I'm chill. No, I think.
2: But I think you bring up a really interesting point in that. That's another form of experience. listening to a recording versus being at a live concert which sounds very obvious but if you were just listening to something for the first time on a recording alone you may appreciate it you might be really moved by it but I don't feel like you're ever moved to spontaneously apply I think it is very much a social sign to say Uh, I am appreciative and you need to make sure that everyone together knows that you're appreciative because if you don't clap you look I feel like that's partially that you got it (laughs) It's true.
1: I think that might be part of the energy in the room thing we were talking about before, though, like sort of the opposite, because, you know, that's kind of obviously something that's not done here. You're less likely to do it. But if you think about a jazz show or even outside music, like a a stand up show, a lot of that applause does happen where, you know, like in jazz, there tends to be a little applause break at the end of a solo and that kind of stuff. But sometimes people do just kind of go yes like after something that was really cool or which is hate it yeah i know but they do and they
0: need more etiquette jazz jazz concerts need more (laughs) etiquette clapping at the end of every solo so you miss the first two or three bars of the next solo Mm -hmm. and the and the wooing woo constantly it's like but is it genuine? At any time, I think, it doesn't I, matter if it's genuine. It's fucking it stupid. <laughs> it's fucking stupid. This is my my sole takeaway from jazz school is jazz musicians are stupid when they're watching shows and they feel the need to broadcast to the rest of the audience that they recognize the lick that was just played. And so they have to let everyone know by woo. Yeah, I think that's I part I of heard it. those subs. Woo.
2: The aspect that I didn't mention is that a big part of the applause is for the performers. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. It's a part of show, you know, you're thanking them, but you're also expressing your appreciation. So, I can see that you don't have to be necessarily or your anger grooved, or your anger. <laughs> but there's a there's a level of uh, politeness to to applaud to thank the performers for sharing the music. I just think that it gets taken it, it starts losing its meaning after a while, especially when you start putting in the, the facets of saying, don't applaud here, applaud there. I actually have a little quick story that a friend of mine shared just by chance. I saw her post something on Facebook at the exact same time I was writing up notes about applause. And I talked to her about it and she expressed this. Her opinion is that she thinks it's silly to indicate for an audience when and when they can't applause, which I agree. And she was telling one experience that really made this point, which he was watching a concert where a conductor was on stage and he proceeded to conduct and indicate to the audience when and when not to clap. And oh. yeah. And what made it even more egregious is that when one of the performers, I'm assuming a soloist wanted to take a bow, he stopped them so he could take his bow. And I didn't get the impression it was a joke. What? And ugh. I feel like those are the type of things that if I didn't, if I knew nothing about concerts and I went to this, I would feel anxious and probably never go again.
1: Oh, I yeah. would hope even people who've never been before can tell that that's gross.
2: Yeah. That's I mean, I so, so. Yeah. gross. It's very gross.
1: Drop the name.
0: Who
2: is? Ugh. Was this, it's anonymous. Was this new music? New, but I get the impression it's also very much in an old school mindset to me, that's the epitome of what I hate about.
1: I've never heard anything like that though. That's
0: so weird. I mean,
2: but even, even if,
0: even if if you were in the audience for that, is that alone really enough to keep you from going to a concert again? Assuming you enjoyed the music. If you really love the music, if you love the music, yes, but if, that's kind of a meme in the, in the classical music world, like this over-concern that people feel so put upon by the etiquette that they get stifled and don't go, which I think is ridiculous. Because every performance you go to has etiquette and, and times that are appropriate to clap. I think the only difference between classical music and, you know, rock or jazz or even a comedy show is that just as much as there are times that you should clap, there are also times that you shouldn't clap. It makes sense to clap at the end of the first movement or in between movements.
1: Yeah. There there, there are examples where it's tough to talk about one in abstract, but like mm-hmm. if you have an ending that's very powerful, but in a very quiet or hushed or somber, or sad way, and there is supposed to be this sort of like meditative quality to it or... More like just sober, a word that hasn't been said here before. Atmosphere, then it's if people break out into applause after, I feel like it does kind of take you out of it. It kind of can burst the bubble where the music maybe is supposed to be what comes back in to take you out of it. But maybe that's up to the conductor to pace that well. Mm hmm. Instead of if they don't want applause, then they should pace the music that way. Now, of course, you might also have people who are very quick on the draw with the clapping.
0: Those people are annoying. They start, they have, the, they're following the score. And so they start clapping five
1: bars before. Then. <laughs> like, I know this piece so well. And the home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: I don't but it, know. but it, I think my, okay, my, my previous point was. There's not another performance that I can think of where you will get a clear ending to a piece that you're not supposed to then clap for. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's only in classical music, and if you yeah. don't know the piece, you know what? Sometimes you're watching a piece that you don't know. You're like, and, how many movements are there? In this? Yeah, and you're like, is that the end, or is it like a pause? I'm gonna wait to clap until the conductor like puts his hands down and throws up,
1: whatever they whatever they do. <laughs> <laughs> Peace is over, two down the throat.
2: <laughs> I don't like when people Talk about a ritual. get upset with someone who's clapping in between the movement. But who, you can, who gets upset? I've been at concerts but where who? you can see the you can see the audible people putting their hands and they're like... Shh.
1: I actually was at something once. I wish I could remember the piece because me and a buddy were talking about how that one specifically... It really—that's the case for clapping between movements because the end of the first one is so awesome. Anyway, it's a symphony, but it's like it's kind of like a powerhouse where just each one, even if it starts slow and sad and stuff, it ends in this really fun, awesome way. But the first movement, there was like a, a smattering. There was some people who like started clapping and then kind of got elbowed or something <laughs> figuratively, but like they gradually won over the audience like the first time the conductor kind of looked over and he was just like oh that's nice i guess and then after the second movement it happened again but this time those people kind of like were like no i'm fucking clapping and then the conductor kind of was like confused and then in the third movement people were just like screw it and some more people started clapping and he was just like great like they won over it was really it It was was i think it was Mm -hmm. an interesting energy in that room like that wouldn't happen anywhere yeah but it was cool to experience that happening, and it it did in the case of a symphonic piece that's very positive and more of just a, an adventure, like a, a kind of even though it's not all major chords the whole time. It's you know it's um it's kind of like a fluff adventure movie kind of piece. I wish I could remember what it was. I just remember the atmosphere of it. It wouldn't work for everything, but it worked so well for that. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was really fun.
2: Well, that seems like it elicited a genuine reaction. The, the Avatar Symphony?
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. that's it. Yeah, the last airbender. <laughs> Not the James Cameron. Yeah.
2: my I would argue that the only time that is is it's very polite and expected to clap is at the very end of the concert, because you're thanking the performers for the evening. I don't think you have any responsibility yeah. at any other time during the performance to clap or to not clap.
1: You think you have a responsibility to clap at the end of the concert? I
2: wouldn't say responsibility, but I think that if you feel thankful that you had this experience, even if you didn't much care for the music, but you that you appreciate the performers, then it's gracious of you to applaud the very end. That's the only time I would say, argue that I think it's expected that you clap. But you don't have to.
1: What's your opinion then on getting out the Instant the piece ends to beat the traffic.
2: I don't like that. You don't like it? No. Mm. Yeah. I think that's that's actually worse. Let me rephrase. If you did not like the concert, you leave whenever you want. But if you really did like it, but you don't. Oh, but you you stayed to 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 the end. Well, if you
1: liked it enough to not leave mid concert, then you should stay through the applause. Yeah,
2: and if you liked it enough that you were thankful, you should stay and just express your. I know it seems like what's one the difference of one person. It's not that it's. It's, that it's the it's,
1: seeing it's the people go
2: yeah and it's it's, yeah. it's just it's like you it's more important that you get out of the traffic than it is to just stay to the thing that you basically paid money to go see it's hard
0: for me to put my finger on it because when i think about the reasons you'd get up right as as uh you know the last chord is still ringing and you're trying to get out so that you can beat the crowd i totally understand why you do that and and mm-hmm. it makes sense and that's It sounds like something I do, but when I see people walking up the aisle, like as the sound is still reverberating through the hall, it pisses me off. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's like mostly old people who know that like they they're not agile enough in their walkers or their wheelchairs (laughs) or their like that's crutches. <laughs> and they're, they're trying to. They can't like navigate through the horde of people trying to mm-hmm. leave. And I think the answer there is that those people should never leave their places. They should never leave their homes. They should take oh, that's right. Never leave. Take this a seat. permanent residence in yeah. the continent. They, they had their time. They don't deserve any more good times. <laughs> See, God, I think fuck I think those people so... who get AARP and try to try to get out the door before me. I'll jump over those motherfuckers.
2: See, I think those are acceptable reasons. Because they're old.
0: That's the only unacceptable reason.
2: (laughs) I like the point that you made earlier that everything does have rituals, I think. Whether it's rock or jazz or classical. But it's really, I guess the point is what is the point of the ritual then anymore? Are you doing it because you just are going through the motions? Are you doing it because you actually want to participate in the ritual? And I'm not saying that rituals are a bad thing. Rituals can be a good thing. But I think that those water, the water's getting muddy. And people that go mm-hmm. to, especially people that are going to a classical concert, if they don't know about classical music or they want to give it a chance, it could be turned off. Yeah. I know, and I in, agree with in, you in a, that it's rare. I don't think that it's killing, that's the thing that's killing classical music, which we've talked about before. I definitely agree that's not very common that someone might write off classical music completely. But I think the fact that it could, why do we even still cling to that ritual?
0: I think people are in classical music are, are, disproportionately concerned that their presentation of classical music is turning people off elaborate. Yeah. That the, Oh, <laughs> that the presentation of that, that it's the things the around the music, not the music turns people off that it's the, it's the music and it's the concert experience that is turning people away from classical music as opposed to, uh, people just aren't exposed to it.
2: But do you think that the experiences should be, should change or should not change.
0: I don't think it matters. Interesting. I think it does.
2: I think I think that it should change with societal expectations of what you do in like communal events. Like I think that if you are What
0: in the concert going experience do you think should change, other than a, a prohibition on people over seventy? <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's tricky. The bigger the type of concert, the bigger you have to
1: jump over this bar to get into the concert hall
2: <laughs> yeah that's me, yeah, there
1: should be <laughs> it's a low bar it's like three testing. it's three inches off the ground. you have to have a vertical leap of this high to get to access the concert I would love that it's so funny, yeah, think of all the face plants, get out of your grandma,
0: <laughs> not for you, just because this piece was written. <laughs> In your living room. (laughs) In your your lifetime.
2: That's a really good question. Hey,
1: there's new music. I think part of it is that we, we think about it as, and we've been saying this for the last, whatever the time code readout is on your podcast feed right now, that it's etiquette. It's this prim and proper set of rules that are set down in order to look like you're of a certain class. Rather than thinking, which is obviously just a prescribed term because what it is is a set of things we do to overcome certain issues that we have in this medium the reason you don't come in late or leave you know in between during movements as you please is because this is a type of music that has very quiet parts and lots of detail in the sound and so you'll ruin other people's experience if there's a lot of chatter same thing goes with mm. random applause and that kind of stuff now maybe this solution we have of just a set of like overly strict pool rules isn't the answer maybe we should be amplifying the music or reengineering the concert halls or changing the instruments so that they speak better and that kind of thing right The th- the things with dress code and all that that's you know Lost cause. Although, as we said, maybe that, that that probably doesn't exist anymore.
2: Well, I think actually, when you were, but you just said actually helped frame my thoughts better. So, thank you. You're welcome. And I think you hit it on the head when you said it's it's about showing different levels of class. Or I personally would rather have someone who came in was so excited about the music that they clapped during a piece at the end of. I would take that person any day over someone who came in, could not give a shit about the music, but was completely proper. And then that was like, that was their thing. Like, oh, I always go, I always go to these classical concerts, but they probably couldn't tell you what was on that concert that night once they went home. I mean, my personal experience,
0: I, I rather have someone who's, who sits quietly mm-hmm. than someone who claps. Cause I don't, I don't really care that they're having such a great time. That they need to have, they need to add to the performance, like broadcast their appreciation. If 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 you're clapping in the middle of a piece, you're a dick.
2: But what's the What point? about
1: a rock concert where everybody's clapping like the whole time?
0: This the sound is shot anyway. It's it's so loud. People are well, that's a screaming
1: good point. to talk to each other. Yeah.
0: The rock concert sound I mean you you had a good point that the etiquette now etiquette in anything is gonna be inherently exclusionary because you're not going to be privy to it when you, when you first approach whatever it is, but most etiquette is functional. Yeah. You don't clap in between movements sometimes because that ruins the vibe and, and you shouldn't be taken out of the, taken out of the mentality of the piece with, with applause. I mean, sometimes it is appropriate. Pro- I mean, probably most of the time it's, it would be, Totally vine to clap in between pieces, but um or in between movements, but you know, kinder tone leader. When
1: I found that, I was, like, that, that mm. I was like, yeah. that's a perfect example. Yes, that's like can't argue yeah. with that one. Yeah.
0: You you know what? I have I've never been annoyed by anyone at a classical concert, you know, breaking the rules or, or whatever. But people who don't understand etiquette at comedy shows, that really upsets me. Because I feel like every time I go to a comedy show, I'm always sitting next to a table of like nine heathens from Long Island or New Jersey. (laughs) Just like just dolts, just dullards who think you can you can talk throughout the entire show. I think it's a different example, though. Oh, I don't think it is at all. I think it is
2: because you're talking purely because you want to have your own conversation. You're not it's not anything being prompted by the show. But what about disruption? Like, what are examples of, of people who, of ways to
0: disrupt a concert? None to me are as egregious. No, I mean, no, the, the symphony of like slowly unwrapped uh, cough drops are not as bad as the, the Long Island dicks talking at the Comedy Cellar. Well, see,
2: no, no, I think we're conflating two things because I, I was not saying that having a conversation during a concert is appropriate
0: no i know i know
1: no and, but like other other forms of interruption oh, they
2: definitely are, But again see i guess the point that i'm making is more theoretical you're never going to get to there's never going to be a perfect concert that all the cues of when to clap are just so given to you because the music moved everyone and it was so perfect that you don't clap between a movement because you were so drawn to be quiet and that because a movement was so beautiful and there's always gonna be that level of do I clap, do I not clap? That's just part of the experience. I mean, but
1: stuff like that actually does happen even in the rock concert venue, though. Like, there are I mean, who knows? Maybe it's friggin' edited like that because they're concert videos, but like rock concert videos. But there are times when there's a a concert version of a song that's, and it's really drawn out and it has this really like profound ending. The band kind of ends it. And there's a really long silence afterwards where the audience kind of comes together and knows that oof we need a breath
2: after that. And then they apply. And that's genuine. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm arguing is best case scenario.
1: But it shouldn't be enforced for it to be that way.
2: Correct. Yeah. But it's not enforced. And it shouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, these are very general blanket statements, too. I'm not trying to say that I would love every concert to experience one person clapping in the middle of a, of a movement. These are all extreme examples. This, again, is more philosophical. I guess my my point is that I would rather have a concert where people's reactions were completely informed by the music, regardless of interruption, as opposed to people that went and just went through the motions and didn't care. Not saying that one of those things are going to happen. You're always going to have a mix But philosophically, I think that one has a much more value over the other, because if you were just going to go through the motions, then you can go home, go through the motions of playing play on your recorder and sitting and listening to the the thing by yourself. Because at the point of going to listen to it together is you're, you're engaging in a not verbal conversation with the performers, but you are going to be a member of this experience. And I just don't think that there should be anyone that's telling you how or how not to respond to that. Except maybe like throwing up in the aisle and like throwing feces. Episode. Yeah, yeah.
0: No,
1: that's that's it. Hey, podcast listeners. Some of you may have noticed that we've been hearing a lot of Michael doing interviews so far this season. That's because I've been away for the last eight weeks at the Aspen Music Festival. It's been a fun challenge getting these episodes to you all, and so for this week's episode, I was so pleased to talk over the phone with Kate Soper. Kate Soper is a composer and vocalist whose music uses an incredible array of timbres, harmonic languages, and extended vocal techniques to create music that excites the ear and fascinates the mind and all contributes towards An idea relevant not just to music, but to most contemporary art. She explores not only the intelligibility of the human voice, but also how well music in general can communicate from person to person. Her language is experimental, wild, thought-provoking, and often moving. Her pieces go far beyond the typical setting of poetry to music, and instead, she uses her own literary skill to fuse together ancient texts, treatises, and a wealth of other fascinating literary sources, including her own words. Since 2006, she's been a co-director of the Wet Ink Ensemble, an innovative group of musicians who have done a ton of great work supporting new music around the United States. And in 2017, her chamber opera, Ipsa Dixit, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. I could go on and on about why Kate and her music and all of her work are incredibly cool, but it would probably serve much better to just get straight to our interview. So here you go. Enjoy. Hello? Oh, hello,
3: Will? Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Okay, I'm so sorry about that. No
1: worries. Yeah. Cool. So, uh, thanks so much for, uh, coming on our show this is awesome we we're like all, yeah. all three of us were just like talking about this the whole prep for our season so oh cool yeah well,
3: thanks for having me
1: just so excited to have you on and like hear your thoughts about a whole bunch of different stuff I don't know if you've mm-hmm. heard the show it's mainly just uh very conversational so if we get to mainly music stuff then that's how it goes but if we uh you know stick to sometimes composers end up talking about cooking and politics for (laughs) 45 minutes. And then, and that's what we air. So it's sort of to show the, you know, the person instead of just delving into like music theory stuff all the time okay. without any real segue. It's just, this was the first question that popped into my mind. Once I found out you were going to come on was when you came to, when I heard you speak, I think at Juilliard uh, last year, I think it was, I was just Uh like, so interested in, uh, your knowledge of and love of literature and like, and how that informs your music. I just thought it was so interesting. Well, first off, like, do you have like a text or an author that you find the most inspiring or that you just love the most?
3: I don't think I could pick a favorite author or Texts, there's, I mean, there's so many things. Yeah,
0: it's like you know, asking like a favorite composer, three books, I guess. Right now, <laughs>
3: yeah, 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 totally. So, not really. I mean, there's people that I kind of come back to um, for inspiration, and there's books that I, you know, have read more than a few times or something. But, um, yeah, in general, I think I'm, I'm always kind of searching for like the next thing to get really excited about and, and caught up in.
1: Cool. What are you book-wise? excited about right now?
3: Well, um, right now I'm reading this uh, 18th century novel called The Monk by, um, I forgot his name and the book's not on my desk, that someone mentioned to me um, an English professor at New, New College in Florida who was teaching a class on the Gothic and I kind of thought like, I, I bet I would be interested in reading some gothic stuff this summer so (laughs) you know it's in public domain obviously so just kind of picked up a cheap copy and i'm enjoying that a lot you know in the 18th century i think kind of like early-ish in terms of novels and what they were doing and also a kind of a sense of that being the entertainment the the plot moves pretty quickly and it's kind of completely ludicrous and also it's a fictional text yeah it's a yeah it's a novel so it's about like oh cool yeah like a ghost nun and all these like lovers intrigues and um and then
1: i don't know why with the title my brain went to like the the prince or something like that oh yeah
3: no (laughs) you know yeah, yeah i think i i when i read nonfiction it's usually for research and when i read for fun it's usually fiction i think yeah so that's just that's just like what's on my bedside table or whatever right now research wise for reading i'm sort of thinking about um, audiology and hearing disorders and uh, other kinds of just trying to get a deeper look at the um, auditory system for something I'm working on now. So wow, is that
1: for a specific piece?
3: Um, yeah, just for something I'm just just starting, so you know, not totally sure what it is, but feels like it has to do with knowing how the sense of hearing works in a more deep and nuanced way.
1: It seems like uh you kind of are able to assimilate things from all kinds of different. Do you find that you have to like maybe keep yourself from mining from everything or do you just let yourself take everything in as a potential uh you know musical source?
3: Um yeah, I think I think the second thing. I think something that that I think is a common experience for readers in general is just the more the more open you let yourself be, or the more you let in, the more connections you see everywhere, and you just end up uncovering connections, and, and also just sort of noticing coincidences at a really high rate, uh, just because, oh. uh, yeah, so just, you know, I'll be reading, I, I can't think of a good example, but I've had moments when I'm, like, reading some poem, and it relates to some book I read, read two months ago and a page that i earmarked or like it reminds me of some young adult novel i read 15 years ago just just somehow things start to make connections Hmm. i think just because there's you know there is some limit to the stories that get told so they end up kind of uh talking to each other in kind of strange ways so yeah i think the more you the more you can take in the more connections you'll find so it's it's good to just sort of like follow a train of thought you know, even if it seems like it's taking you far away from your destination.
1: Just from what I've gathered, it seems like you enjoy reading philosophical texts a lot, at least based on what texts are in your some of your pieces. Uh-huh. Uh, is that on the, the research side or the, the bedside table side?
3: Yeah, um, I guess I wish it was on the bedside table side, but it's probably on the research <laughs> side.
1: <laughs> just because of the density.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's hard to just like, a oh, you know, few paragraphs as I drift off here or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I really, I mean, I really enjoy the research reading too. And sometimes those things interconnect because, of course, there's tons of fiction that has a lot of philosophy in it and there's philosophy that has fiction in it. So, um, mm. But yeah, I think the the philosophical readings that I've done that have turned into kind of dense librettos have been things that I had on the work table.
1: Were, uh, we're either of your parents writers or, or I don't know, maybe into philosophy or, or music, I suppose. What, what was... The, yeah,
3: yeah. They, they're both writers. M- most of the people in my family are writers in some capacity. Um, oh. And I mean, my they're also both lawyers, but um, not that there's anything wrong with that. And uh, my dad <laughs> my dad is a philosopher, so he...
1: Very Jerry Seinfeld of you. <laughs> well, I know.
3: Not that there's anything wrong with it. Um, truly. But uh, so my dad was a, a philosopher um, and also a lawyer. So he taught... Contracts and legal philosophy at U of M, and then my mom um, had a PhD in French and then went back to law school and um, uh, was sort of more in practice. But uh, but yeah, the, my my dad is the one who, you know, gave me his giant book of Aristotle that I cribbed from to write Ipsy Dixit and um, would sort of talk to me about philosophy when I was a, a teenager starting to get interested in stuff.
1: So are you the sort of the first musician of the? the group
3: well everyone people had various degrees of interest and aptitude um, i'm I'm the only one who's well I have a cousin who actually who's a who's a singer and she's and teaches singing and I have other musical people in my family but yeah i'm the I'm the mm-hmm. probably the one who's like doing it for work or making a real go of it but my dad was a actually a really good pianist just kind of for fun oh. I kind of didn't really realize till later what the difficulty level, the pieces, he was just kind of like working up. My mom used to play piano when I was a little kid, but then sort of stopped. And my brother and I both took piano lessons, and then he played trumpet for a while. So, you know, music was around, and it was part of our lives. And then I think I just took it to an extreme. It sounds like you
1: sort of were able to adopt some of their areas of expertise into what you do as a musician.
3: Yeah, I hope so. With, I mean, with like
1: narrative yeah, and all that. Yeah,
3: yeah I mean, I, I you know definitely have learned a lot from my family and... Um, always have bounced ideas off of them so I think I learned from my parents the importance of being a good writer and just a good communicator and how essential that is to making yourself heard and expressing yourself and forming bonds with people so writing was part of all of our lives in some capacity and then um uh, music was you know a requirement from them actually when we were kids like you know piano lessons were sort of a chore and then it just became a, a this huge source of joy in my life that continues
1: so right you were so you were a pianist first and were you a vocalist throughout that time and then picked it up more seriously later
3: yeah well it's it's hard to to know exactly because i think now i kind of realize that you it's it's hard to know what in what capacity you were anything you know i mean i was a pianist I, i took piano lessons and i studied piano and had piano recitals and all that jazz but um Uh, And then I I was singing all the time, but I wasn't studying it. But I never really—I sort of became a professional singer before I had actually gotten any training. So I sang all through college as a singer-songwriter and in choirs and the occasional musical. And then when I got to New York for grad school, I joined Wet Ink and started singing as a new music soprano. But it was sort of after that that I realized, like, oh, I better like get someone to help me get some chops with that. So
1: I guess, for lack of a better word, classical music style of Well, like the, yeah. Le- but, what when um, you say singer-songwriter, I'm guessing it was more like pop or Broadway singing or
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't really know, but it was, you know, piano vocal stuff. Yeah, yeah, pop or Broadway and and not but I don't mean that I needed to necessarily get classical training. And I think that's sort of what I realized is it's I just needed to become better and I didn't know how, and then that's when I kind of realized, "Oh, there is some value in, you know, western operatic vocal training which I had just always resisted because it wasn't relevant to what I was doing as a, as a singer or a composer but just that mm. I didn't know how to control my voice or I didn't know how to you know th- things that you think about as, as far as, as like bel canto techniques it's just like oh it's it's useful to be able to sing from your low register to your high register and not have a noticeable break or it's useful to be able to know how to Be legato when you want to. So just tips and tricks of vocal technique, which are codified in a specific kind of style or genre, are actually really useful just to anyone, I think, who just wants to be a better singer. So that's what I think I had to realize in my kind of mid-late 20s when I was sort of singing in front of people and realizing it that I wasn't really tapping into everything probably that I had.
1: And I mean, like, obviously now you have pretty amazing control over your voice because... You do a huge variety of different things in your own music alone with kind of extended techniques for the voice and that kind of stuff.
3: I probably have less variety than it appears because I can do the things that I'm good at really well. And then I've learned to do some other things, but there's still plenty of things that I can't do. You know, I'm sure if I was like trying to sing Verdi, someone would not say, oh, she's got so much range. But yeah, I can sing my own music. You know, expertly, and then I can mm-hmm. sing some other new music. Um, you know, well, I hope, and um, just just try to work at whatever is in front of me as a as a singer in the moment.
1: If I'm not if I'm not mistaken, you either prepare or construct a lot of your own texts for your pieces, either from your own writing or from uh, kind of an amalgamation of other writers. Yes, that is correct. My question is, does actually physically singing factor into that process when you're doing that? Are you using maybe vocal improv or something like that to construct that? Or do you have some other, do you have a method for kind of building these narratives out of pre-existing parts?
3: I think when I'm making a text for something, I usually do it kind of separately. I'll work on an adaptation or I'll work on, you know, a tapestry of different texts. And then what's nice is that, especially if I wrote the text, is that it changes a lot when I'm setting it. And then if if I wrote it, I can just change it. And there's still some occasions when it's more like how it was back when I was a singer-songwriter. I would write the melody and the text together, which I think is typical for that genre. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, most of the time, I think... I, I might have like an idea or like a rhythm or something, but I think, I don't know if this is totally true, but I, th- I think that I kind of like try to sharpen the text as much as I can first and then kind of start figuring out what, what it sounds like. That could oh, not be true though. Kind of Actually, I'm not really sure when you, now that you mentioned it, but I, I, that sounds right to me. Yeah. That I kind of like get the text where I want it and then, and then start setting it. So
1: some t- so if it is a section that's y- your own text, then you, you do kind of do the words and music at the same time business. <laughs>
3: Well, sometimes I do that, or then also I just, you know, change it, uh, as I'm going. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> if something's too long or something too short or wrong vowel or, you know, doesn't, yeah. Wrong vowel Asking to sing for at permissions that pitch or in that sense is very yeah, easy. Right? <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's a relief. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: I guess when you're, I mean, some of your narratives and concepts in your music are pretty complex to, and i Curious how, do you kind of start with maybe a source text that you want to work from that, or or is it more of a overarching concept that you then hunt for things that would be appropriate?
3: What was the first option?
1: I guess I phrased it kind of poorly. No, no, it's not you. I just, I'm just like... If if you're reading through a text, does that inspire an idea for a piece and related texts in you? Or do you kind of have an overarching concept that you like hunt around Uh for suitable excerpts or or whole text from?
3: Um, I think it depends on the piece. So there are some, like, uh, kind of an older piece now, Voices from the Killing Jar, that one. Actually, you know, maybe it is more the second one, because I was going to say that is more like I read something and wanted to do something with it, but then it kind of, once I had done that a couple times, it became an overarching concept.
1: That's actually the one I was thinking of when I was asking, because there's so uh, so many amazing sources in it.
3: Well, I think there, after I wrote the first movement that I wrote of that, then I had an idea for a collection, and then i I think I had already read all the books, so it just sort of like I was like, "Oh, I could do that person from that, and I could do that chapter of that, and I could do that thing that I read you know back in the day mm. so it did become kind of an overarching concept that was instigated for me by reading something specific and wanting to interact with it because that sets me on a path as a reader, and it it invites me to pile books on to both the work table and the bedside table, you know, and, and really Mm -hmm. like forces me to kind of be profligate and just sort of like look everywhere and and see if I can find it. And then once you're, you know, I think this is true, not just with music or even creative work, but just once you're looking for some kind of vague thing, you just start seeing it everywhere. So that's kind of a fun way to, to move through the world for a while. yeah. Yeah.
1: How do you, I mean, it sounds like your process involves so much, reading and just your, your life involves so much reading, like, how do you find the the time to do it? Oh,
3: I mean, I wish I'm, I think I'm like probably making myself sound more intellectual than I am. I also watch (laughs) plenty of TV and like waste a lot of time, but, um, I mean, I I have to keep up with it. It's like, it's not always what you want to do after a long day teaching or something. So I think I just try to remember, like, I've got, you know, some books I'm reading now and I want to enjoy them and read them. But then if I'm researching, then I really, um, get into it. And that becomes part of my creative work time. So, you know, it takes Mm. a really long time to write music, as you know. So part of that time for me is reading. So it's sort of mostly just a part of my personal um, work routine. And then also just something that I try to keep doing in my free time because you never know when that's going to end up being useful. Uh, but often I think because so, I've been reading for a long time, if I have an overarching idea, there already are some things just in my memory that connect to it so I can like go back to those things and then they might lead me somewhere else. So, you know, the more you just the older you get, the more synapses have already kind of formed a little ladder in your brain so you can kind of like climb around in there and stuff. <laughs>
1: mental shortcuts. That was
3: weird analogy. Yeah. yeah.
1: No, I love the, the ladders in <laughs> your brain. It's interesting. Oh, I was just going to ask you something about that and it left my brain. Oh like, no. Yeah. The ladder fell well, out. there's shoots in the brain too. Oh. I'm just gonna... yeah. <laughs> hey. I don't know how often this happens. Uh, I've been poking around your website and catalog and stuff for the past you know, few days and all that good podcast guest stocking that goes on. If you're Writing for a non-vocal work, let's say, and I, again, I don't know, has that happened recently, or
3: that I've written a um, non-vocal work?
1: Yeah does does your is your process just like incredibly different? Because I would imagine so much of what you do is
3: no, it's kind of the same. You know, built I mean, from the Yeah, voice. no, I mean, I take a lot of notes and do a lot of. Re- I mean, and I, actually, I haven't really written anything without at least text for a while. I think the last thing that I did was. Um, a saxophone duo, but it was based on a speech from Agamemnon, so I did do a lot of reading about that, you know, so... <laughs> oh my um, god, how does that work? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't even, like, I don't know, it was about Cassandra, you know, so I was just um, thinking about her and, like, her interactions, and actually, I do think I had, like, a little libretto in my head. Sometimes there is actually, like, a pretty concrete narrative and even dialogue mm. for me with instrumental music but then of course it's completely inaccessible to the audience so that I think can backfire but it's it's helpful for me and it and it just keeps my nourishing my mm-hmm. interest and in, and in thinking about things that way
1: well having that can still stimulate some kind of a, a structure or a form yeah. that yeah. you're building it along so. yeah
3: I think it's it's helpful for me I'm just not always sure if it's if it ends up what it does to the piece or if it the fact that it's going to be incomprehensible as a, as a structure because it's in words and the words aren't involved in an instrumental piece, I don't know, if that, that may, might make pieces sometimes seem strange or it's hard to tell why they're doing what they're doing with even like apparent purpose, but no meaning that you can sense. I don't know. But yeah, usually <laughs> there's some kind of book, you know, or some something I'm thinking about often, even in an instrumental piece.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, and sometimes the point of some of your pieces is that it is difficult or impossible to really communicate something in words or music as yeah. you're conceiving it on your end, right? Right.
3: I think that's one of my, one of my like central questions that motivates me as a, as a composer and a writer and a singer. So, so maybe yeah. That,
1: that was something I think you were speaking about. Um, oh, I'm going to, I know I'm going to think it's the wrong piece. <laughs> um, you're you talking about a piece and, uh, you were saying that like, sometimes the goal was to have, have the text not be quite intelligible. Uh-huh. And so it's such a, an added level of skill in like text setting and orchestration that, you know, controlling not only just can you hear this one part as the foreground, but is this one part really just intelligible enough? The The listener thinks they hear it one way, but it turns out it's another. It's just <laughs> fascinating.
3: Yeah. I mean, that's hard to do because it's it's hard to be intelligible, really. I mean, when you're singing, so it's it's. I'm always looking for ways to play with that, but I think it's tough because it's it's hard to signal intentional unintelligibility. Um, like this piece I just did a couple of weeks ago was partly about fragments from Greek tragedy. There was a section where I. I had set this long fragment that's really chopped up, just has a lot of missing pieces. And every time there was a missing piece, I just like blasted this a sound that I'd made on a, like a, analog synth that I have access to. Um,
1: Bringing back your air horn? <laughs>
3: well, basically, yeah, it wasn't an air horn. It was a- able to be modulated for audience comfort. But um, but yeah, just some something to really clearly say, like, now you hear me, now you don't, you know, and that that is sort of part mm. of our experience of reading and hearing people and all these metaphorical ideas about he- listening to someone, but not really hearing them or hearing what they're saying, but kind of twisting the meaning, you know, it's just, it's complicated to communicate in
1: in words. Do you ever, um, I mean, when audiences go to a performance of one of your pieces, is there background on your sort of the the philosophical background behind the piece, or are you more interested in letting them just experience what you've written and that, and that's sort of there for you or as a subconscious element to what they're doing?
3: I mean, lately I've, started not being able to help myself really explain things, and it it sort of doesn't seem fair or right to just have it for me and expect the audience to care about what I'm doing if they don't understand it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think because I'm a performer, composer, Mm -hmm. and also now a professor for a few years, it just feels so comfortable for me to just be able to say, okay, this is what I'm about to do, you know? And then I can Mm. also, I can not do that or something, but but then, you know, just to set something up and to set out a premise can be really nice. Um, This is another thing I did in that piece about the missing scenes, and I've got a gig in September where I'm kind of working on something like that, too. So lately, it's become more important to me to have more speech um, and more kind of in-world explication, like, you know, program notes that are part of the libretto and stuff. So, yeah. While I'm up there singing, I might as well, like, tell everyone about it, and I might as well think about how to do that in a way that is part of the piece, you know,
1: there's a little bit of that meta element to, or not even just a little bit (laughs) in Mm -hmm. here. Be sirens. Yeah. uh, right. There's some Mm -hmm. of that text direction. Yeah,
3: absolutely. Yeah.
1: Speaking of that piece, how a lot of your work came about through wet ink. How, how did the mounting of here? Be sirens come about? Was it a project that you sort of conceived and then found a way to put it together? Or was it organized with a, a group of some sort? Um,
3: Yeah, I think it was sort of more the former. So I had been away all fall in France at a residency as a grad student. And then, so I kind of, I'd been really kind of heavily immersed in wet ink and in New York. And then I kind of was suddenly like in this tiny like fishing village for three months by myself and then came back and kind of was like oh yeah there's some other stuff I want to do too and um, Fe-
1: feeling nautical
3: <laughs> yes well abs- I mean definitely for sure I was like yeah. listening to boats and like you know watching the waves so I'm sure some of that got in there so I came back and was kind of talking about it to some I had some other friends in grad school who were part of the kind of collegium choir that I sang in. And then there was a group called Morningside Opera. I don't know if you ever heard of them. They are now disbanded, but they were basically like the wet ink of opera companies. So, you know, Columbia grad students getting together and forming a group and, um, and they were just sort of, you know, friends. So, they were basically like, "Well, write something and let's put it on." And so that's—I guess—I just sort of started working on it, and I, I actually—I got a, a Guggenheim grant that year, and it was such a essentially small production and, and cheap production that that took care of everything oh, funding-wise. Yeah, so that was um, really lucky, and then we just had a venue that also was kind of was giving us the space in kind. So it, now that I'm you know mounting a huge opera, I look back on that was like, "Wow, that was like a." Cannily easy production to put together in a way and we would just like you know only three of us so we'd just go you know rehearse in a Columbia practice room or something mm. and especially
1: uh, with it being just such a huge compositional undertaking you know without it having an, an end point right at the at the start it must have been a little scary kind of taking that on
3: yeah you know it never feels scary to take anything on because Maybe it does if you, like, get a commission from the Met and they're like, okay, it's due, you know, in, in four years or whatever. But I think when you're just exploring an idea and, you know, you're talking to your friend at a bar and they're like, yeah, let's let me help you with that. And, you know, it's just sort True. of – it comes together, and everyone I who was involved was a friend, basically. So, yeah, the process of writing it was was great, and I really loved it. And that that took me, you know, probably a year and a half or so. It was stressful, oh, but oh. um, but it was possible because it was a good team. And mm. I mean, I I got to do a, I read a ton of cool books for that. I got to do a lot of really interesting research that still sometimes comes in handy.
1: Yeah, I. I had no idea that like the siren myth had so many different, had so many different facets oh, yeah. to it and so many different variations. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah.
3: It's really, it, I mean,
1: like I'm, I'm reading through like Joseph Campbell and I'm going, wow, oh, yeah. I had no idea. And he,
3: he's <laughs> in there too. Yeah. I mean, I, it's like, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it's nice when you, I mean, if that's almost why I, I resisted it for a second when I was like sirens.
1: So this new opera that you have in the works, is this also going back to, to the classics, or are you what do you? Um, no, maybe it's a deeply more, guarded secret. No,
3: then. it's not. <laughs> the, oh, the thing that I'm just starting to work on, or the thing that's coming up in April?
1: Uh, in the one in April, oh, I, yeah. I, I guess I'm guessing that's what you meant by. I
3: do, I that's what it's what I meant by that, but um, I'm also just working on a new thing, but yeah, so no, no, that's not a secret, that should be rung out across the rooftops so that people come to the show okay. um,
1: this is perfect we were just gonna rent some rooftops great so. All right, yeah. I look forward to hearing Hearing the
3: advertisement blazing across the city. Um, no, that is not the classics. It is much more freshly contemporary, thirteenth century source. So it's a it's a medieval ah. text. Yes, I mean it's contemporary. It's I mean I guess kind of like Sirens. It's mm-hmm. like got these old bones, but it's really about our lives now. So it's um, yeah, loosely based on or not even based. It's inspired by the Romance of the Rose, which is a really influential. Um, 13th century allegorical poem. Uh, so it's it's basically mostly original text at this point. I kind of wrote a new story from it. And then there's some of the original Old French. And then there's a bunch of contemporary poets.
1: Is it, it's not of the same format as Sirens, I'm guessing. It, is it a larger, Yeah, it's uh, larger. It's, like a full cast? Or, it's um, a full
3: cast of um, seven singers and eight musicians and live electronics. And it's um, two acts with an intermission. So yeah, it's, it's bigger in scope and size and length.
1: I might as well keep the plug train going on this. Where yeah. Where is that happening? Okay, yeah.
3: so it will be at um, Montclair State University at Peak Performances, which is an easy hop over from the city uh April 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th of this spring. Yeah. At the very
1: least, now I don't have to email you frantically before this comes out saying, when were those again? That's oh my God. true.
3: <laughs> yeah, so we're just actually having a workshop in a couple weeks on the final um, draft of the piano score. So excited to, oh, cool. to deal with that, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: That's not really, that's I just jumped to mind. That's not related to the name of the rose, is it? No, no oh, Okay. By the Umberto Echo. Yeah, yeah. No, although
4: I read just...
3: that that was a that was one of the novels I read for quote unquote research. Um because oh, I was whoa. like that's got rose in the title and it's medieval so and actually it was really interesting. It, actually speaking of coincidences, because I was also finishing Dixit at the time and there's a whole plot thread about um Aristotle's poetics and I was like, I know all oh, about cool. that. So um
1: No, it had just been recommended to me and I was like, There's no way this is this coincidence as well.
3: <laughs> well be crazy. It, it, yeah, I I've crazier coincidences have happened but yeah it's not it's not the name of the rose although that's a really cool book
1: i had just finished house of leaves and was telling them about it and they were like, oh check this out Uh because so i have no idea how closely connected those are but see
3: that's a book that uh, i that i think i bought at one point and like never read and feel kind of guilty about because i just oh
1: it's a trip (laughs)
3: yeah it looked great i just like was too lazy or something but
1: um yeah I, i usually tell people to make sure you're in like a really positive place in life oh, <laughs> before okay. embarking on that, that one. I think I'm okay. Uh-huh. It's a doozy. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. No, cause it, it's so, it's like it's literally the dark. experience of going insane. Oh, okay. Well. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, back to music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, so you're just, you're doing, working through the piano score right now. Is that like, in I know for contemporary music, it has to be just the most absurd task to try and take, you know, an arranged score and have it be playable in two hands so that the singers know what's happening where.
3: Yeah. Well, that has been an interesting experience for me. I think I'm sort of new at like a big production like this where I can't just kind of do everything myself so I think originally I thought like okay we'll workshop it with all the musicians and then just realize that was going to be really complicated and really expensive and that it wasn't really necessary so and and actually I mean opera has a bunch of different kinds of music in it which is another thing that I do sometimes and that happened with siren so there, there's you know there's a fair amount of material that sounds fine with the piano and then there's a fair amount of material that you can get by Pretty Okay with Piano, and then there's some stuff that's going to be kind of weird, but we'll get through it. We had a workshop last summer with Piano, and then we did bring in the electric guitarist, because it was just like, okay, we can't, like this is going to be stupid if we try to play this on piano. But this summer is... is is um, also our first time to really start looking at staging, so I think it was important to just you know pare it down so that the director has a chance to talk to the singers and move them around.
1: So you've got viola, electronics, electric guitar. Is it? So I'm guessing a chamber ensemble of some kind.
3: Yeah, it's uh, it's clarinet, sax, um, violin doubling viola, cello, piano doubling keyboard, harp, percussion, and did I say electric guitar? Electric guitar and electronics.
1: That's a great mix. Cool.
3: Yeah, I hope so. I haven't. I'm. It's a little weird that I haven't orchestrated it yet, and I've been working on it for so long now. But that's what I'll be doing this fall. So,
1: how long have you been working on the on the piece?
3: Um, it feels like f- my whole life. But um, well, I first read the <laughs> book in grad school, actually in 2012, right when I was starting to work on Sirens. But I I just was like, okay, maybe this will be my next thing someday. And then I started toying around with it and. Maybe like spring 16, but just little, little exercises. And then I was on sabbatical that year. So fall 16, I really started research in a kind of directed way. And then I started writing the libretto in the, that spring of 17. So yeah, I'd say wow. I've been working on it for, I don't know, I guess that's like two and a half years. And then it's premiering in April. So it's going to be, yeah, a good three year yeah thing.
1: Are you, are you performing in the... Production? I am
3: not. I kept hemming and hawing, and I kind of wanted to play, you know, all three female parts, and or all four, and then I kept thinking, like, well, maybe I shouldn't for this workshop, or that workshop, or the next workshop, but then I would enjoy playing any of these parts, but... It's just too much going on. I think, I, I think it would sort of would be irresponsible of me in a way. I think I really need to be able to listen and commit myself fully to being the composer or librettist. And maybe if we ever revive it, I can, I can <laughs> pick a part or something.
1: So that's in New Jersey. Are you teaching it in New Jersey I, at Montclair?
3: No, no, no. I teach at um, Smith College in, in uh, Northampton, Massachusetts. Montclair just has, runs oh. this performance series and, um, you know, lucky to have them producing us and they have a really nice theater out there and stuff.
1: I see. I don't know. In my, I thought that you were living in New York for some reason. Uh, no,
3: I don't mind. I
1: guess I have you tied up with Columbia that, in my head. Yeah,
3: yeah. I mean, I was in. Yeah, I mean, I still cool. do a lot Where? of work in New York, but I don't live there anymore.
1: Where in Massachusetts is that? It's,
3: uh, it's Northampton is west, so it's about an hour from Tanglewood. If you've ever been out there,
1: so. oh, gotcha. How is that? how are you liking it up there after? Because you're from the Midwest. Yeah, I'm from Ann Arbor, and then, Michigan, and then New York. Mm-hmm, okay. And Okay.
3: Well, then Texas for undergrad, and then California for a year, and then New York for eight years, and then Boston oh, wow. for
1: a year. Oh wow! You covered the whole country. <laughs>
3: yes, I guess I have. Yeah, Amazing. yeah. That's oh, nice. I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a beautiful part of the world, and it's, it's so dense in New England. It's kind of, it's easy to. Get on the highway and find yourself in New York or Boston or something. But it's also nice to be out here and where it's quiet and plant a garden. The winters garden. are
1: tough, but not quite as miserable as Michigan, I would um,
3: guess. Actually, I was just telling someone that kind of remind me of Michigan. I think it's kind of on a par. They're
4: both oh, really? really
3: cold. I don't quite remember getting as aggravated with the length of the winters in Michigan, but maybe I just had like different you know youth concerns or something. But yeah, it's um, mm. now it's summer so. I'm cool. not going to think Where about it. Where were you in Texas? Uh, I went to Rice University in Houston for my undergrad. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm.
1: So, so what is this, uh, the thing you're working on now, if you can say?
3: Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Well, it's really new, so I won't say much. But um, I will say, I can say some things on the record. But I'm 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 trying to find a way to work with text and music that is not an opera and not a play with incidental music and not a song cycle, just find some other way where like mm. music can really be part of verbal action and drama. So
1: sort of be the narrative and not just represent it. E- or, or
3: just be, be an equal part of the narrative along with, oh. with people who are talking, who who are not singers. Oh, cool. Yeah. So we'll oh see. Oh my God. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how or whether this is going to work but just sort of like it's fun you know it's like always fun to do something you don't know if you can do oh, So yeah yeah
1: oh cool so i have a last question that i like to ask the guests when i do the interviews on the podcast which is kind of a, a simple one but it, i think it's just like a, we talk so much about concert music i think it's just a fun way to
3: oh is this gonna be in like in what's your favorite topics? pop music and then i'm gonna sound like a oh, big it, dork who doesn't wow, listen
1: it doesn't actually, no, it's not, what's your favorite pop music, but I tend to, I phrase it as what's, what's the music that speaks to you most that's not concert music slash opera, I suppose.
3: I guess I, I watched that whole, um, history of the world thing on YouTube the other day. Do you know this person, Bill Wartz?
1: No. Okay. Oh, is it a... He's like a YouTube celebrity who oh, makes
3: cool. these, these like funny, weird animated sometimes informational videos and um, just has an interesting way of like intercutting continuous little snippets of kind of vaguely vocoded synth stuff. Just has kind of like a funny ear for these oh. beats of music versus talk. Uh, so, yeah, I guess that was kind of a fun thing I was listening to this week, kind of like.
1: Oh, and I also, I had just wanted to, I had wanted to ask, is there, what is kind of the background of your, interest in all of these ancient Greek texts and, or not, I guess they're not all Greek, but all of these, the classical texts or the, these older, uh, sources, like, is there something about them that you're really drawn to?
3: Sometimes it seems like the surface is ostensibly clear in some way. Like people didn't know about deep irony or, um, a sophisticated literary tricks or something. So it's just some sense that the author is trying to entertain you in a way that I appreciate or trying to like make sense to you. I don't know. That's not really true. I mean, there are plenty of obviously huge depths of irony and complexity and like Greek tragedy, but
1: mm. I don't know. But it's not, it's not being presented to you as that. Maybe. Yeah.
3: And maybe something about the distance of time, sometimes it's easier to relate to because if you read... Sometimes if I read a contemporary novel, it it seems weirdly more dated because it's someone else's experience of something that I, too, have experienced on a a trivial level and a deep level, which is like this crazy Mm. modern world. Whereas if I something older, sometimes it's I don't relate to the surface level. So the deep level is more accessible somehow, maybe, or I don't really know. I mean, these are huge mm. generalizations. I don't know. You know, sometimes you just have a thing that you like and you don't really know why. So, yeah, I think for me, it's old books sometimes.
1: Well, it it creates such like a unique and really fascinating end result. Like what you do with it is just so intriguing. Oh. I, I'm always like I've never been super drawn to reading like The Republic or something like uh-huh. that, but. When I listen to these, I'm always just kind of like, I should really be digging into this. They're mm-hmm. so engaging, and uh, with the piece itself, obviously. It's, uh-huh. Well, again, I can't re- thank you enough for coming on. It was this was so fascinating to hear from you and about how you work. Oh,
3: thanks, Well, like,
1: so I look forward to hearing more and uh, hopefully getting to see some some of this new stuff live.
3: Yeah, well, come out to Montclair. Yeah, will do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, <laughs> cool. uh, enjoy Aspen. All right.
1: I will. Yeah. yeah. Have a good one. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Right. Thanks again very much to Kate for taking the time to come onto the podcast. Since we started planning our second season, we've been incredibly excited that Kate was going to be on the show. So we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you want to learn more about Soper's music, upcoming performances, past pieces, or anything about her work, go to katesoper.com. If you happen to be near the Eastman School, a new movement from her ongoing work, Missing Scenes, is going to be premiered on October 17th. Or if you're an incredibly prepared member of our audience, you can get tickets now for her new opera, The Romance of the Rose, that we discussed in our interview. The performances are April 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th of 2020. You can get tickets online at peakperfs.org. That's P-E-A-K-P-E-R-F-S dot org. Just search under events. And it's going to be really cool. We'll be back in your feed again next week with a new topic of discussion and a new interview, as always. Please feel free, if you have any questions about things we talked about today, to send us an email, loudboxnyc at gmail.com, or reach out on Twitter, Facebook, or any of those other things. Don't forget also to check out our Spotify playlist, where we list everything mentioned in a given episode or if you feel like contributing to the show and helping us expand and reach more people and do even better, you can leave a review on the iTunes store. That actually really helps. Or you can find our Patreon page and leave a donation. Until next time, we'll leave you with a piece from Kate's project, Missing Scenes. This is Lost Greek Tragedies.
3: A missing scene is something that we can't see or hear or read because it's not there on the page or the screen or the stage, but we know it exists. It's like the stuff skipped over in a time jump or an important conversation that gets referred to but not transcribed, or an action that happens off stage but that changes everything. it can be something that's intentionally withheld by a creator or something unintentionally lost through accident or happenstance. But whatever the circumstances, missing scenes still speak. Even the smallest fragments or the faintest trace can have a deep impact on our lives. Ancient Greek tragedy, for example, has had a huge influence on Western culture. As the first entertainment to feature a chorus and a sung-through story, it allegedly gave rise to opera. Its exploration of multi-generational trauma helped us better understand the human psyche and its portrayals of anti-heroes that you root for inspired many of our favorite television shows. But to say that we're missing scenes from this body of work would be an understatement. Actually, this body of work is one big missing scene with a handful of gaps filled in. There are about 22 ancient Greek tragedies which have survived fairly intact, and many hundreds which are mostly or entirely lost. Sometimes we know the basic subject of a lost play, but not much else. For example, Carcinus the Younger wrote a play about Zeus's lover Semele, for which we have the opening words and nothing else. we get a hint of something unusual, like an Aristarchus' Achilles, whose only surviving fragment is a metatheatrical address to both the characters and the audience. Rise up, herald. Make sure that the people here be silent and keep quiet and pay attention. tragedian Critias seems to have been preoccupied with the underworld in his plays.
4: So
3: earned him the nickname Bile. Guards by Ion, whose fragments suggest Odysseus and Helen of Troy in (laughs) cahoots. seem to have been about wars or other historical events. there is evidence of one astonishing rarity. A play by Agathon that is not based on myth or history, but unlike any other surviving Greek tragedy, is purely fictional. However, nothing survives of this play, except the title. And actually, the title itself is in dispute. There is just enough information in a distorted, tattered fragment to give a sense of plot. We can almost trace the shape formed by the broken pieces. If we could just see through the noise. remains of ancient Greek tragedy is just scattered bits and pieces, broken phrases with no context or just handfuls of single words. And yet, there is a tantalizing glimpse of something whole, A story that might have changed who we are. A whisper from an alternate reality. In every residual,